I go by Jim, Jim Matlock, although my professional name is James. Uh, I, so I've been, um, well, I'm an anthropologist uh, by, uh, by profession, although uh, before I got into uh, anthropology, I was interested in parapsychology. In fact, my reincarnation interest goes back to around 1980. Uh, I, my first choice of career is actually writing. I wanted to be a creative writer. Uh, but I, I found it was difficult uh, to make a living at that and, uh, and was looking for another topic to write on. And that's when I discovered reincarnation. And the more I read about it, the more intrigued I became. Uh, and uh, that's what led me into psychical research. It's what led me to Stevenson's work. And uh, once I found that and realized that there was uh, a serious um, work being done in this area, I was, I was hooked. And uh, so that's how I got involved with this, uh, uh, with psychical research and reincarnation research in particular. Uh, and so I, I've been at it ever since. So I guess uh, 1980 to, to 1920, 40 years, it doesn't seem like that long, but I guess it's been important. Mm. And just, just um, if, if we end up talking over each other, just for anyone listening, there's a very prominent delay from uh, both of our sides so uh I, I, I try, i'll try not to interrupt you jim but I, I can't do much about the delay unfortunately it's a pain but there we go um and anyone that doesn't know who dr ian stevenson is he was um, or was he was certainly probably one of the most well-known pioneers of um i want to say near death of um reincarnation cases and uh did a lot of of publications on that subject for i believe it was the society of psychical research uh, well, he, he was at one point he was uh, president of the SPR, uh, but he was he was more associated actually with the American SPR uh, in New York. He was Canadian by birth, um, I, but uh, uh, yes, he was a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia. Uh, they hired him actually in a tenured uh, position, uh, just he was getting interested in uh, in parapsychology and psychical research. Uh, and just as he was beginning his reincarnation uh, work, uh, that was in 1961, was the first time he went into the field. So yes, he was the pioneer in this uh, uh, in the systematic study of uh, reincarnation. Mm -hmm. So um, could you kind of relate to some of the most um, indicative cases of uh, that serve as the most indicative evidence of, of um, the truth of reincarnation, and from either your own or Dr. Stevenson's research, or indeed any in the field? Right. Uh, well, let me use one of my own cases. It's one that I um, uh, that I worked on for for my last book, um, which is also called Signs of Reincarnation. Uh, it was published by Roman and Littlefield, an, an academic publisher, which I'm quite proud of, uh, I, because most most books on reincarnation are not written for an academic audience. This one was, uh, but it starts off with this case. Uh, it's, an, it's an, of an Oklahoma girl named O'Reilly O'Banion, who, um, uh, who before she started talking about memories, uh, was behaving in uh, very in ways that can only be described really as sort of representing a post-traumatic um, 
stress. Uh, I, she would sleepwalk almost every night. Um, she would complain about her clothing, her shirts, uh, you know, that they hurt her, uh, her neck, her shoulders, uh, her back, wanted tags cut out of her shirts. This is when she's two and three, four. Um, now, when she was three, her mother had uh, pictures taken of her and the rest of the family. And one of those pictures in particular, just one of them, um, it seemed to stimulate uh, memories. And she would tell her mother, this is beginning at age three, uh, that she was bigger in that picture. Well, this made no sense at all to her mother. I mean, how could she be bigger in a picture? Her mother was pointing out, well, she's three, how can she be bigger in the picture? But she, every time she saw the picture, and her mother had it in her office at work, and so you know she didn't see it every day, but every time she went there, she would make the same comment about the picture. This went on actually for three years. It wasn't until she was six that she began to have clearer memories. Uh, and at that point, she told her mother, uh, she reminded her of this picture, said, you remember that picture where I was bigger before? And I said, yes, and she started to argue with her again about it. And she said, I died. Um, and so it, it took her until six. So several years of these behaviors uh, before she, uh, she began to have enough conscious memories to be able to understand um, that she was recalling a previous life. Um, uh, and after that, she gradually began to remember more and more. <clears throat> and what she remembered um, was uh, um, being uh, killed when a cr plane crashed into her house. Uh, plane crashed into her house. I mean, this almost sounds fantastical. Um, I, she was talking about this. Her mother, her brother asked her, you know, uh, where she had lived before, where she wasn't quite sure. Maybe it was Canada. Maybe it was Louisiana. Uh, she thought the, the date 1971 sounded significant, but she wasn't quite sure why she wasn't. But anyway, these gave her gave her mother some clues, enough clues to go to the internet and Google this. Try Googling 1971, plane crashes, Canada, Louisiana, nothing in 1971, nothing in Canada. But there was a plane crash in 1982 uh, in Louisiana, in the New Orleans airport, in, in a suburb named Kenner. Now, Kenner doesn't this may sound more or less like Canada to a small child, maybe. So that could be where the, the Canada link came from, but it was Canada. Um, there was a Pan Am crash in 1982. At the time, this was the third worst aviation accident in US aviation history. The plane took off from the airport, caught a wind shear, low altitude wind shear, and crashed into a, uh, a residential neighborhood less than a mile from the end of the runway. Everybody on the plane was killed and six people on the ground were killed. One of those on the ground was a girl, a child, uh, who was in her carport of her house, which is exactly what Rylan was remembering. Um, when I interviewed her at age 10, 
um, she told me that she remembered sitting on a swing in a carport. A swing in a carport? I'd never heard of a swing in a carport. And I, and I asked her, are you sure the swing wasn't in the yard? A swing set, maybe? No. And it wasn't on the porch of the house. It was in the carport. She was quite definite about that. She was sitting in the swing on the carport, talking on the telephone. When she saw the plane coming towards her, and then she said uh, that she got electrocuted over the telephone line, and she died of electrocution. But when she was looking towards the plane, well, uh, actually, this I'm getting a little bit ahead here because so after interviewing her, I went to Kenner to interview people there. Remember. Stevenson interviewed people on both sides. So that's what I did, emulating Stevenson. So I went to talk with people who had known the person that we had now identified as being the probable person whose life she remembered, right? Um, and I went back to their old house. As it turns out, and stood in the position that she would have been, the, the house has since been torn down. The house was demolished in the crash anyway. Uh, and the carport was ruined, but I stood. In, but the driveway was still there, and the house, you know, the house had been rebuilt, or a new house had been built there, and the driveway was still there. So I stood in the driveway, and from the driveway, the view was of trees, of a utility pole. Anyway, I sent a picture from what I saw from the driveway to Ryland's mother, who immediately made the connection and sent me back a picture of what Ryland would have seen when she was standing in the yard and had that picture taken of her. In other words, it's not the picture of Ryland herself. It's the, it was a picture of what Ryland would have seen mm -hmm. when she was standing in that From position. From Ryland's point right? of view. And the similarity, yeah. So the similarity was, the, the similarity between what Jennifer Schultz would have seen at her death, and what Ryland saw when she's when that picture was taken is remarkable. And so her mother and I realized that what she was doing when she looked at the picture was then that was cueing right memories. That was the association back to these memories, and that's why, as a three-year-old child, she got confused and was trying to explain. You know that she was that she saw something similar that she was older. She just couldn't explain it right. So this all began to make sense, right? Um, okay, the swing in the carport. Well, it turns out that indeed, in that neighborhood, there were carports with swings. They're like porch swings, but they were in the carports. And walking around that neighborhood, I found another house not far away that had not been damaged in the crash that still had a carport. I mean, it still had a swing in the carport. Plenty of room for the car next to the swing, but there's a swing in the carport. So indeed, Jennifer, could, the way these are constructed, the door to the kitchen uh, went into the carport, right? So this is 1982. I mean, you didn't have cell phones then. You didn't have, you know, the, you had only very primitive um, 
uh, uh, wireless phones. So most likely the phone was on a wire running out of the kitchen, but it would have reached, you know, to the swing, to the, uh, the swing. And so it's quite plausible that she was sitting on the swing, even though this was not something that was picked up in the news stories. You know, there were a number of news stories written about this crash. Obviously, it was a very big thing, but none of them talked about her being on a swing in the carport. They all missed that. None of them, in fact, put her put her in the carport at all. Uh, I went and I obtained her autopsy report, and her autopsy report said that her body had been recovered from the carport. So. She did, in fact, she, that places her in the carport. It also means she died in the carport. And the autopsy said that there was uh, no soot in the trachea, is that there was no smoke plant, that she had died before the plane reached her. Uh, remember, Ryland said that she'd been electrocuted. Uh, her body, when recovered, was 100% burned. So any marks of electrocution, you know, would have been erased from her body, from her skin. There's no way of confirming that. But the autopsy report makes clear uh, that somehow or other she died uh, before the plane reached her. Now, as it turns out, passing right in front of the house, on that, the house side of the street, were electrical lines and telephone lines running next to each other on the same pole. And I learned that in 1982, the electrical lines in that neighborhood were not insulated. So, and the plane coming towards the house would have had to have sliced through those, you know, uh, we know it hit the house and we, we know it sliced the, you know, we. You know, it, 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 it is simply a fact. I mean, it did slice through uh, the power lines and the telephone lines. Uh, what we don't know, but can surmise, is that they came into contact. And if they did come into contact, then it is very possible to hold that an electrical uh, impulse would have been sent up the telephone line and that Rylan could have been electrocuted that way. No proof, but it's plausible, entirely plausible. So here we have Ryland remembering something that is not documented anywhere, nowhere. So it's not something that could have been gotten clairvoyantly. It's not something that she could have read anywhere and remembered. There really isn't any plausible explanation for how she knew that other than she remembered it. Um, you know, and so that's the, this is how these cases work. I mean, this is what you do. You go out, you collect all of this information, and then you try to see if there any plausible way that you can. And when you get a case like this, where you really, there's, there's a key element here that there really is no other good explanation for, uh, that you have to say, well, hmm, maybe, she really did have memories of Jennifer's life. And in fact, it's much more than that because she also had, her personality turned out to be very similar uh, to Jennifer. 
when I talked to her friends, her friends asked me, you know, about um, whether she loved to make crafts, for instance, uh, in some in particular crafts. Like I, uh, uh, she liked to make uh, crosses at Christmas time, and uh, uh, one of uh, the things particularly prized by her friends was a uh, was a little owl on a stick. Well, when I talked to Jennifer's family, I hadn't heard about crafts. But no, I mean, they hadn't, it would never, never have occurred to them to, to mention that. I mean, they wouldn't have connected that to Jennifer's. But I went back then to Jennifer, to Ryland's family and asked them about crafts. And sure enough, Ryland makes crafts and the same crafts. She made little crosses and took them to her friends at Christmas time. She made um, an owl on a stick, very similar. So, you know, you put all of this together and, you know, it, it gets to be beyond coincidence because you have to ask, at what point do all these coincidences get you to the point of being beyond coincidence? And they do in these cases. And, and so this, this is the, you know, but this is the sort of thing that the skeptics don't even, they don't grapple with, you know, they, they start, they start by making assumptions that this cannot be right. And so they don't even, most of them haven't even bothered to read any reports at all. And this is clear from the statements that they make about them. I think one of the most popular arguments you'd have from the skeptical side for something like that would be they'd bring up the God of the gaps fallacy. So in this case, you know, it's unexplainable, therefore it's paranormal. And they don't kind of like that idea because they think it's unscientific. Um, But as you say, um, you could also argue that it is coincidental, but First of all, there's so many of these cases that it's it's you can say that they're all coincidences, but it's also the depth and the content of those coincidences that make it so unlikely to occur. Not just the fact that one coincidental thing happened, but it's the depth of which that coincidence must be in order for that to be the case. And it seems rather unplausible. Yes, that's right. And it's, it's, and it's not just the reincarnation uh, cases. It's the consistency between the reincarnation cases and near-death experiences and apparitions and mediumistic communications, all of this coming together, which is very consistent. But I, in, it, there is the skeptics um, are right on, and that is uh, that we need a theory. We need a way of explaining this. We need a mechanism that makes sense um you know and and that's something i've been working on it's been a particular interest of mine developing a theory uh because i I, you know i think that um that until we have an acceptable theory uh that there is always the possibility that uh you know that they can be explained in you know in some other way Uh, now any adequate theory of reincarnation, though, is not going to be compatible with materialism. It can't be. The only theories that are adequate to materialism are ones that explain the data away. The ones the skeptics favor, mm-hmm. that it's fantasy, that it's the, 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 uh, the parents imposing uh, identities on the children, that it's faulty memories and all of this stuff. Uh, um, so we have to start off acknowledging that um, any adequate theory of reincarnation that um, goes counter to materialism uh, 
has that strike already against it from the materialist point of view. Um, and so in a more general sense, what has to happen is materialism has to be successfully undermined. And this is beginning to happen. Uh, more and more people, uh, academics, scientists in fields are questioning materialism everywhere from philosophy to quantum physics. They're really questioning whether uh, the materialistic idea, the physicalistic idea that, that consciousness is generated by the brain uh, works. Uh, and so there, there, and so the whole materialistic point of view is beginning to break down. You know, and keep in mind, science, this is the way science works, right? I mean, you know, there are a lot of things that we know now to be true that, you know, were once thought to be wrong, right? Um, and not just big things like we now appreciate that the world is not flat and we appreciate that the, uh, the earth revolves around the sun, not just big things like that. We can go back, uh, you know, just a few decades to uh, continental drift. And, uh, and plate tectonics. There was a time in the 1960s, as recently as the 1960s, that that was still considered pseudoscientific. Continental drift was first, uh, was first suggested in the 1920s, but for decades, there was no mechanism. People didn't understand how it could work and they didn't believe in it. They thought continents were fixed. And so, you know, there was no way that they could understand continental drift. And just through it now, shall we say it's the bedrock of geology? You know, I mean, continental drift is they can't. You know, everything depends on it now, but that hasn't always been the case. And so, science changes, right? It it changes its ideas. It 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 evolves, um, and it ideally it ought to evolve in line with the data. It science ought to be data led. Ideally, it is. That's what science is supposed to be about, right? Collection of data, study of data, systematic study of data, building hypotheses based on the data, testing of those hypotheses. You know, and and if 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 data is collected that that questions, you know, the given theory, um, then you you know you follow the data. This is what happened with quantum physics at the end of the nineteenth century. Uh, you know, materialistic ideas uh, growing out of uh, Newtonian ideas, Newtonian physics were, you know, um, that, was, that was science. And uh, at the end of the 19th century, it was really believed that, you know, they, science had really gotten to the end, that it was, it was just mopping up from then on. Well, but then at the beginning of the 20th century, when they started working on some of the outstanding Finding problems like light, you know, why, you know, explaining light and realizing that light can be understood either as a quanta, as a particle or as a wave that led then into an entirely different way of, of understanding physical reality. And that's quantum mechanics and quantum physics. That's 20th century, early 20th century stuff. Um, so, and we were led into that through the experiments on, um, on light. 
and then through theory trying to explain those results. And the only way to explain them really was to develop this entirely new theory and to show not so much that you know, the old physics was wrong, but that it was partial. The old physics of reality, but with the very small and the very large, it breaks down. Um, so we're in a similar sort of situation now. I mean, we already know that materialism breaks down when you get to the very small and very large. Uh, so how then can we be so sure that there that that consciousness is generated by the brain? I mean, well, you know, how, why can we we can't we can't presume that anymore? So the door is already open uh, to thinking beyond materialism, and that's all it takes. Once we start thinking beyond materialism and start accepting the idea that maybe consciousness is not generated by the brain and that consciousness might have an existence independent of the brain, then we can start looking seriously at all of the evidence that we now have, all the evidence that has been communicated, that has been accumulated in psychological research and parapsychology. You know, since the founding of the Society for Psychological Research in 1882, long time now. Um, all that evidence which suggests something non-material to the human being, we can start taking that seriously, right? And once we start taking that seriously and beginning to realize, hey, this isn't just a theoretical idea. There's actually evidence for it. You know, then, you know, we begin to able to appreciate the evidence that Stevenson developed uh, for reincarnation. So this is beginning to happen. It's beginning to happen, but there's still a lot of resistance to it. Uh, you know, and uh, as the saying goes, science advances one death at a time. It's going to take another generation or two, but I believe it's going to come. It has to come because actually those of us working on these problems mm -hmm. are on the right side. I mean, you know, it's it's very obvious when you get into this material that we are. I mean, there just there is no other way of explaining these things. Just to move on briefly, Jim, to Ian Stevenson himself. Um, he was very well known as somebody who followed the scientific method very rigorously and was um, acclaimed very widely for it. Well, there are several who claim that he's a pseudo scientist whose methods are very questionable at best. Um, I found actually an article that says, um, not to get your opinion on it, um, I'll just give you a brief quote from it. This is from um, Skeptic, skepdic.com. Uh, what possesses a man of Stevenson's intelligence to chase after chimeras and produce thousands of pages of detailed reports that amount to a heap of rationalizations? As Michael Shermer succinctly puts it, smart people believe weird things because they are skilled at defending beliefs they arrive at for non-smart reasons. Uh, Stevenson spent about half his life trying to find support for his beliefs in reincarnation and their relationship to medicine. The beliefs came first, the intelligence was applied to confirm the beliefs. So I think that's generally how most people see generally a lot of people that work in this area, and that comes down to um, cognitive bias, doesn't it? So I wonder what your opinion is on, on that. We have to try to unpack this. I think there's several issues here. Um, 
One, uh, the most general one is I, I think we can turn uh, this skeptical uh, position back on them. Um, they are the ones really uh, who have the blinders on. They're the ones who are insisting upon seeing things um, through uh, through the, the prism of their uh, preconceived mindset and aren't allowing themselves actually uh, to, to think beyond that um, and even consider the possibility uh, that there might be um, evidence uh, that would lead them in a different direction. And so for them, uh, th those skeptics who are committed to a materialist point of view, uh, materialism, of course, is the philosophical uh, idea, and it is a philosophical position, uh, idea that uh, everything about reality is material, begins with the material. Uh, and if you, you take that position, then, um, then there is no, there's nothing immaterial. Uh, so the mind or consciousness have to be, uh, have to be produced by the brain, right? Uh, there, uh, you know, and so when you take that position, then there's no possibility of survival. There's no possibility of psi or any psychic thing. Um, and so, uh, and as a consequence, there can be no reincarnation. If there can't be survival of consciousness, there can't be any reincarnation of consciousness. Follows. Um, so if you start with the materialist uh, uh, position and are committed to it, uh, then you rule out from the start any possibility of anything else. And, and that's where they begin, and that's where they end, consequently, uh, because um, they, they cannot admit that um, Stevenson was data-led rather than, um, than philosophy-led. Uh, but Stevenson was, in fact, uh, data-led, I see. Um, yes. Uh, his mind was open to the possibility of, of something other than the material. Uh, but his, um, his field investigations were aimed precisely at determining whether uh, there was something more here uh, than could be explained simply as fantasy or as uh, parental uh, impositions of identity, you know, in these sort of normal ways. Or, or whether we had to bring in um, some other uh, explanation um, for them. And um, I, so, yes, uh, he, there's a lot of debate. This, this gets to another one of your, one of the questions here. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether uh, Stevenson's methodology was scientific. Well, uh, a lot of that has to do with the, uh, the presumption that science is about laboratory, experiments in the laboratory. And so anything outside the laboratory uh, is, is called anecdotal. It's simply, you know, is, you know and, and is, uh, is put down. Um, there's also the assumption that uh, the only true science is, is science that uh, is behaviorist science. So that anything questions behaviorism can't be science by definition and therefore is cast as pseudoscience. But at any rate, um, so Stevenson was engaged in case studies, um, which then uh, many people dismiss simply as anecdotal. Uh, but Stevenson's methods though, uh, went beyond 
this is simply the anecdotal. But if you call something anecdotal, uh, you, you think of it simply as being a story. And the implication is that he went out and he simply collected stories. Um, but that's not what he did. He went out and uh, he talked to people. Um, in a tip his typical cases, uh, a young child uh, has memories uh, of a previous life. So he would talk to the child if the child still has memories and is willing to talk to him. He would talk to his parents uh, and his elder siblings and any friends and you know anyone who had heard him talk about these things. He would talk to everybody, and he talked to them repeatedly over a period of years to check with you know check on memory accuracy and things like that. Um, and he was particularly interested in uh, the memories that had been confirmed. So these are cases in which uh, the children remember things that actually check out. Uh, they remember having been people who can be shown to have existed. So after talking with everybody on the subject side of the family, Stevenson went and repeated the efforts then on the previous side of the family. He talked to everybody connected to the person now deceased uh, about that person's life to try to independently confirm that the memories of the child did indeed match that previous person. Uh, he went further than that and sought out any sort of written records he could find. Like for instance, if the previous person had been uh, killed, uh, there might be medical records, there might be autopsy records. Stevenson would collect that sort of thing and see if he could match it up uh, to any injuries then on the on the child, and very often, indeed, they did match. Uh, another major dimension of these cases, which the skeptics do, do, usually do not like to deal with at all, they just avoid, is the behaviors. Uh, once the identification is made to somebody, you can actually see uh, that the personality and the behaviors of the previous person are then represented again, reproduced in the subject of the case. So it's not just memories that you carry over, it's behaviors which seem to carry over, and also uh, physical things uh, which are then reproduced. So you have to look at all of these elements of the case together. And um, this is what Stevenson did. He looked at all of the elements of the case together. Uh, and he looked at it in a very intensive way by interviewing people and collecting documents. And that means his case is much more than simply anecdotal. Uh, and, and it's really unfair to then dismiss his methodology as being simply, as being non-scientific or pseudo-scientific, uh, you know, just because it, it wasn't, uh, didn't follow laboratory methods or because, uh, uh, you know, or because uh, in the end, his interpretations went against materialism. Yeah, I think the, the main kind of crux of this article is that he s seemed to start with the um, conclusion or the belief and then found evidence to support that. Would you say that that's accurate of, of his his workings? Or? No, it's not. I mean, that's that's something the skeptics like to say. Uh, I he went in uh, with the question on his mind, you know, is this, uh, is this something we need to take seriously or not? Um, 
you know, when he first went to India, he first his first field trip was to India and Sri Lanka in 1961. Um, and he knew about a few cases uh, at the time. Uh, and that's what he, he went uh, to see what he could find out about them. He went with the expectation that basically what he was looking at is simply memories. And he went with the, uh, with the background in psychical research and with the question principally of whether uh, there's anything paranormal here. Um, whether it could be shown that the, the child had um, uh, was saying things that he had no normal way of, of, of knowing, right? Uh, and he was surprised to find that the cases also had these behavioral features, behavioral features I was talking about. And that in addition to that, there were also these physical. Um, so th those are things that he didn't go in looking for. Those are things that he learned about in the process of studying cases. Uh, and he went in uh, with, the, uh, with the idea of determining whether there was anything to the cases, not with the, um, uh, you know, not with the conclusion. He didn't start off with the conclusion, yes, there's something to them. He went in with the question, is there something to them? And that's a very different sort of position. But the, you know, but so yes, the skeptics like to say that he went in with the he went in with his position, and that just that colors everything because he was just see seeking proof uh, for his uh, his prior ideas. But that's it, exactly what they do. I mean, you know, they have their commitment, and they're seeking ways to reinterpret uh, his cases in with their their expectations. So. Uh, you know, but but no, that's not true of Stevenson.